Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, Justin Marbury on our pastoral staff gave me a little DVD to watch. It was called The Privileged Planet. And I I put it in, and I watched it on my computer, and from start to finish, I was dazzled. I enjoyed it so much. And from a scientific uh, foundation, the group that presented uh, this idea of our Earth being in the, the habitable zone in the universe and a place of observation, it was just, it was so wonderful. It lifted my spirits. And um, it was informative, as well as uh, being something that was very encouraging. You have an opportunity, and I'll tell you about it before the night's over, to get a hold of that or another DVD free for yourself so that you can watch it or share it with a friend. Um, Tonight we're privileged to deal with an issue that from time to time we need refreshment on. And so I'm not going to take anything away from our speaker tonight, Uh, Dr. Paul Nelson is with us, and he is a Ph.D., holds one, um, in the philosophy of biology. His critique, when he got his doctorate, was on Darwinian evolution. You've got to appreciate the guts that it takes to present that paper. He's a contributor to The Privileged Planet, which is the DVD I just mentioned, a fellow with the Discovery uh, Institute. So give a warm Albuquerque welcome to Dr. Paul Nelson tonight. Uh, I have to warn you that this is going to be more biology in more detail than you've probably ever heard in this room. But it's in the details that the story lies. Now, I want to start with something, though, that's a little offbeat, and it's something that you can download off the web. It's a video. Could you guys start it in the back? Well, they're getting it up and running. Let me tell you about this creature. This is Big Dog, and my brother Gabriel is the lead designer on this walking machine. Now, it's carrying 120 pounds of material. This is a a walking machine that the Army is funding Gabriel's uh, company, Boston Dynamics, to build. Gabriel does the design of how the thing is supposed to walk. Now, watch what this guy does. It took them quite a while to get the robot to do that, not to fall over when it was pushed from the side. Watch that rear leg, how it sticks it out to hold its balance, and then all the other legs find their place and it doesn't fall over. Now that noise you hear is a one-cylinder gas engine that is driving not only the hydraulics, there it's climbing a slope, not only the hydraulics of the robot, but the onboard computer that's 500 times a second calculating the position of the four legs. Here it is walking in muck. I wouldn't want to walk in that. It finds its balance and gets out of the muck. Here it is walking in about four inches of snow. This is at the Harvard test site in Cambridge. And this machine makes a lot of noise because it needs a lot of power to run. Now, you guys can stop the video. This is actually walking in heavy rubble. The reason the Defense Department wants a robot like this 
is so that soldiers don't have to carry heavy packs. So they're trying to build a kind of artificial mule. But the name of the thing is Big Dog. And if you want to see the rest of that video, Google Big Dog Boston Dynamics. It'll come up and you can watch the whole thing. It's quite interesting. Now I want to show you my big dog. That's Bo. <laughs> He's five years old. He weighs about 80 pounds. Uh, about 1 o'clock, 1.30 every day, he comes into my study and looks at me and says, all right, are we going to go on our walk? And he knows every euphemism ever invented for the word walk. So he's a great system, though. He's got a high-tech sensor here. That's amazing. It can detect raccoons, white-tailed deer, identify lots of other dogs in the neighborhood, and so forth. Now, this is his ordinary daytime posture, except when he wants to go on a walk. That's that high-tech sensor coming right at you. Now, you're laughing, but the fact is, a dog's nose and its brain, that system, can discriminate tiny, tiny amounts of chemicals and identify them in a way that we never could. If our noses worked that well, the industry to be in would be deodorant because you would not be able to... I mean, you could identify all your friends in the dark. You wouldn't... <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing is, you see that robot that my brother designed and is working on right now, and if, if it were here in the lobby when you came in tonight, it's big, it's a big machine, it's a meter long. The question that would naturally occur to you is who designed that? Who constructed that thing? And the one answer that you would not accept the one that you would never accept, that it would be irrational to even in, to entertain, is that, well, we put the engine and the parts and the uh, frame in a box and we randomly agitated it for 100 years and this is what popped out. <laughs> to offer that kind of answer to the question, who built this, would invite psychiatric attention. <laughs> now, why is it that when we look at this big dog, why is it that modern biology gives us a different answer, one that does not point to intelligent design? Because in every respect, the real big dog, the five-year-old golden retriever, is vastly beyond the capabilities of that robot on the left. To explain that robot on the left, we need to invoke the true explanation, which is the Boston Dynamics design and engineering team in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where my brother is lead designer on that robot. Now, what's the explanation that modern science gives us for the complex system on the right that is vastly, incomprehensibly more complicated than the machine on the left? After all, the machine on the right, if you bring a female dog into the vicinity, can make more complicated systems. <laughs> That's his expression, by the way, when I'm walking around with bacon or a hamburger or something, you know. It's <laughs> Well, we know that the answer on the left is intelligent design, and modern biology tells us that there was no intelligent design involved in the, on the right-hand portion of that comparison, even though that system on the right is incomprehensibly more complicated than the one on the left. Now, something is wrong with this picture. Something is wrong. And what I want to do tonight, in a fair amount of detail, if you can tolerate it, is to probe that answer. Because I think it's actually not the case that natural selection explains where golden retrievers or you or the bacteria in your gut or the trees outside came from. 
But that is the explanation that's offered right now by modern biology, by Charles Darwin and the Darwinian revolution. Natural selection explains the origin of biological complexity. Now, when you hear an answer like that, you should entertain it, give it a chance, and say, okay, but is that really the case? Is Darwin's hypothesis supported by the evidence? So that's the question we're going to ask tonight, and we're going to try to answer. Is it really true that natural selection is the best explanation for the origin of Bo? Now, Bo is very, very complicated indeed. So let's pick one of his putative evolutionary ancestors. In this group down here, Bo is a chordate. All chordates have a backbone. You're a chordate, Bo is, fish are. That is our body plan, our basic architecture. And you can see there are different body plans up there. There is an octopus, which is a cephalopod, which is a mollusk, and so forth. So we're going to look at the basic architecture that gives Bo, my dog, the form that he has. And we're going to ask about the origin of that, that body plan. Now, this is kind of a, a fundamental architecture, and we compare living things, in, in, um, certainly when we look at animals, in terms of their fundamental architecture. And it's a very high-level property. Here we have a bumblebee and a polar bear. Now, the polar bear is a chordate, so we're looking in this category up here, this group, and we go all the way down here to the bottom and give it its species name, and we can compare that to a different kind of body plan where there's an external skeleton, not an internal skeleton, and that would be the bumblebee. So we're going to look at this level here and ask, how did these... My mouse isn't quite behaving. How did these body plans arise? And according to standard geology, they did so fairly suddenly in geological terms deep in the history of life in what's called the Cambrian Explosion about 550 million years ago. When there was a dramatic biological event and you have the first appearance in the fossil record of most, but not all, of animal body plans. And we're going to look at this one. I think I'll use my later pointer here. We're going to look at this one right here the chordate body plan. Now, in China, there is a fossil site where these early forms are preserved with exquisite detail. Here's one example of that. This is a fish. Here is the fossil of the fish. It's a chordate because it has a, a nerve cord running here along its backbone, and there's the artist's reconstruction of that fossil. Now, this fossil appears in the history of life and chordates in general appear in the history of life with no fossil antecedents. They don't have any clear ancestors leading up to them. Jim Valentine, who's a paleontologist at Berkeley, who's devoted his life to this problem, says this sudden appearance of these diverse forms indicates that they're cryptogenetic. What he means by that big word is that their history cannot be traced from fossil evidence. This is generally the case with all the phyla in the Cambrian explosion. So these forms appear suddenly. But I want to tell you tonight that the Cambrian explosion and the origin of body plans, the, the form that gives the dog the shape that it has, is not really a fossil problem. The fossils just make the problem more dramatic. What really makes this difficult for evolution to explain is the way that animals develop, all animals that we know, from a fertilized egg to the adult organism. Now, to understand why this is a problem, we need to look at Darwin's proposed solution, the theory of natural selection. And I won't spend much time on this, 
but I want to give it to you in some detail because we are in some detail in this formulation, that is, because we're going to spend a little time coming back to it. Look at everyone around you. We're all members of the species Homo sapiens, but if you look around the room or just at the people sitting near you, you'll notice a tremendous amount of variation. Differences in skin color, differences in hair color, differences in height, differences in body mass, and so forth. So that's me, and I'm balding, I'm varying. But all members of the species Homo sapiens, despite the fact that we're in the same species, show variation. So that's the first condition of natural selection. Things have to vary. Then, with respect to the presence or absence of those variations, there has to make some difference to the number of offspring that you have. So let's say uh, you're tall and handsome like your pastor, and you have lots of kids, those tall and handsome genes will be passed on preferentially or at a greater rate than someone who's short and stubby and dumpy or balding like me. So the, the presence of variation, differences in variation, has to make a difference to the number of offspring you have. That's the condition of selection. And you have to be able to pass those traits on. They must be heritable. Heredity. Now, if those three conditions exist for some feature, the natural selection will occur necessarily. Now, I want to stress to you tonight, natural selection is a real process. My wife is a pediatrician. She specializes now, but when she did general pediatrics, she would often have patients come in, and the mother would say to her, my kid has a fever of 102. Will you please give me some antibiotics that I can take home to give to the, my child so that this infection will go away? And Suzanne would tell them, yeah, I can do that, but here's what will happen. In more cases than not, you'll take those antibiotics just long enough for the symptoms to go away. And then you'll put the rest of the bottle in the medicine cabinet in your bathroom. If you do that, and if enough other people do that, that antibiotic will not be as effective against that particular strain of bacteria in the future because bacterial populations are very large, they have a lot of variation, and if you confront them with something like an antibiotic and you don't use it right, you are performing an experiment in natural selection. Here's a bacterial population with some variation in that color trait. We introduce a selective condition. Let's imagine that this is resistance to uh, to an antibiotic, and then here we put the antibiotic in, and it kills the orange, but the yellow have resistance, and they go right on, and there's a real change in that population. This is a real process. Natural selection is real, and we have lots of evidence of it happening. The question is, does this kind of process explain the origin of things like body plants? Remember what our requirements are for natural selection. Things have to vary. Living things have to have differences. Those differences have to make a difference to the number of offspring that they have, and you have to be able to pass them on to the next generation. You can think of this like three legs of a stool. All of them are jointly necessary for natural selection to occur. Now, the reason I'm stressing this is we're going to come back to it later because it's going to turn out to be the case that many of the variations that evolution needs are not heritable. They can't be passed on. And the reason they can't be passed on is because they're too destructive to the organism in which they occur. Think about it this way. You're a young married couple. Your wife is pregnant. The, the woman in the couple is pregnant. It's eight, nine months. Finally, labor begins. You go to the hospital. You're sitting waiting, or nowadays, the husband's usually right there in the delivery suite. 
No parent, no human parent is hoping for a macromutation at that point. No one is hoping for a macromutation. Why not? Because we know that overwhelmingly such changes are deleterious. They're bad. They have bad consequences for the organism in which they occur. And if it turns out that major evolutionary change cannot occur without those kinds of bad consequences, that's a problem for the theory of natural selection. So those are the three legs of our stool. And as far as evolution is concerned, if you can't leave offspring, you're a dead end. It wouldn't matter how tall and handsome you were. If you don't have any kids, you're invisible to the process of natural selection. Now, in Darwin's view, small-scale changes, the sorts of differences that you might see, for instance, in a group of pigeons, if you're a pigeon fancier, or in a small breed of dogs, if you're a dog breeder, those small-scale changes over time add up to large-scale changes. To use modern terms, Darwin wouldn't have used these words, microevolution, small-scale evolution, is necessary and sufficient for macroevolution. That is the origin of things like body plans, major architectural differences. But many evolutionary biologists working right now don't agree. And the reason they don't agree is not because they're like me, a design theorist. They don't agree because they have evolutionary objections uh, to, this, to this claim. In fact, right now in the evolutionary biology literature, a debate is raging over whether microevolution is enough to cause macroevolution. I'll give you just a quick couple of examples. Douglas Irwin is a paleontologist at the Smithsonian. And a few years ago, he wrote a paper, and this is the title, Macroevolution, the Origin of Large-Scale Differences. What you really notice when you look at life is not just a lot of microevolution added up. That's, in fact, the title of the paper that he published. Ge uh, this geneticist, Wallace Arthur, who's in the United Kingdom, I met him when he was at University of Chicago doing a sabbatical, a few years ago said, we do not know how body plans arise, we being the evolutionary biology research community. He said, there's no direct evidence for the Darwinian origin of a body plan. This is the Linnaean binomial for peppered moths, the famous peppered moths of England that you may have learned about in high school biology. And he said, changing the amount of pigment in the wing of a moth does not explain where the moth itself came from. So that's not the right kind of example. And he says, in the end, we have to admit that we don't really know how body plans arise. More recently, he put it this way. And I'll paraphrase this so we can keep moving. What he says here is, how can we take a theory of evolution seriously? And creatures with trillions of cells, that's you and me. How could we have arisen from much simpler beginnings if all that theory tells us is that you can have different amounts of genetic material being passed on by selection? In other words, if that's all that evolution is about, that kind of process, then evolution is not explaining what it needs to explain. And this is how he goes on immediately afterwards. Where do those new variants come from, the, the major ones that natural selection spreads? He says, although the phrase creation science car carries disreputable connotations because of its use by some religious fundamentalists, by the way, that's you, <laughs> we truly need some creation science as a major component of evolutionary theory. What he means by that is that neo-Darwinism, the theory that you have in high school biology textbooks, is inadequate to explain the real puzzles that it needs to explain, like where did body plans come from? And this is a slide 
from a book published by MIT three years ago. And this is from the introduction by these two authors. And they consider all of these open problems. I'll quickly summarize them. And they are the most interesting problems of evolution. Where did animals come from? Why did they all come in at the same moment in geological history, or not all, most of them, and so forth? And they consider these problems open questions, unsolved by current theory. Now, the reason neo-Darwinism has failed is it's failed to bring in a key element, certainly for the origin of animals, and that is the process of development. And I want to use an interesting paper by a another critic of, another evolutionary critic of neo-Darwinism, Gabriel Dover, is a jumping off point for this. Gabriel Dover came here to the United States. He, he's, he's an English citizen, but he came here to work with Francis Crick at the Salk Institute in San Diego. Francis Crick, to my mind, was the greatest theoretical biologist of the 20th century. He was one of the co-discoverers with Jim Watson of the molecular structure of DNA. But he had many other discoveries to his credit. A hard-headed atheist, but a great theoretical biologist. And he was well known in the biological community as being the kind of person that would confront you. He wouldn't spare your feelings. If you said something that he thought was dumb or he couldn't follow, he would buttonhole you and say, you don't really understand the problem that you're working on. So he had that reputation among other biologists. And what he said to Dover, who was working on the problem of macroevolution, was this. You're not going to understand evolution. You're simply not going to understand it until you understand how organisms are put together. Now, what did Crick mean by that? Well, he meant something like this. Let's suppose that the evolutionary transformation we want to accomplish is to go from something like A. Now, I realize real organisms are much more interesting than little PowerPoint cartoons like this. But A has this form, and we want to transform A into something like B. That's the evolutionary transition that we wish to explain. Well, if A and B are animals, large multicellular creatures like you and me or like Bo uh, or even much smaller animals, what you first need to understand is the construction process by which A is built. You began your existence as a single cell that you need a fairly powerful lens to see. You're an egg fertilized by a sperm, single cell, and over a process of about nine months, that single cell divided and divided and divided and divided countless times to construct an eight-pound baby or thereabouts and eventually the people who are here in this room. So if you want to change the form of A, you've got to first change the construction process by which A is built, if A is an animal. So if we want to change A into B, we've got to change the process by which B is going to be built. That's how evolution, if it occurs, must occur in animals. You've got to change their development. And if you remember at the beginning I said that the kinds of changes that may be required by evolution would tend to occur, sorry, tend to occur very early in development because that's where the body plan is first put into place. But it's precisely there where they're least likely to be successful. Let's have a real example. This is a sea squirt. Now, when you go to SeaWorld, you don't rush off to the pen with the sea squirts. <laughs> I mean, this is not one of the more exciting sea creatures going. You know, it's about 10 centimeters high, uh, look sort of like a, a, a bumpy red potato, 
And it spends its adult life taking in water here through its oral siphon, extracting the nutrients and expelling the waste there through its anal siphon. Like I said, not, a, not, you know, not real exciting. Um, but they're part of the creation and they're fascinating in their own right. Now, sea squirts don't begin life looking like this. This is an earlier stage in their existence, very, very small stage. Now, this is a tadpole larva of that form. That's the adult that actually produces eggs and sperm for the next generation. This is a, a, a stage heading towards that adult, but it's very, very small. Only, in this electron micrograph, there are only about 2,500 cells represented there, a millimeter and a half long. But you can see that even in this tiny little tadpole, those cells are specialized for particular jobs. For instance, here's the notochord, the rigid body that goes down its tail that allows that tail to go back and forth so the tadpole can swim. Um, here is a little eye spot here. This is the epidermis, the skin. At this end is a little adhesive papilla that allows the tadpole to fasten to the ocean floor and commence metamorphosis into that. Now, notice that there are two kinds of cells that are not present here. The first kind of cell that's not present is there's no gut. There's no mouth. This is the head. There's no mouth there. And if there were a gut, there'd be a mouth there, a long tube heading back here to an anus somewhere back here. This creature cannot feed itself. It's a non-feeding tadpole. But the cells that are most importantly missing are gametes. There are no ovaries and no cells that produce sperm. This tadpole cannot reproduce. It has to turn into that to make more copies of itself. Now, if you think about the logic of natural selection, one of the necessary conditions of natural selection is you have to be able to make copies of yourself. That's the only way that natural selection can operate. How did natural selection build this tadpole when it didn't exist before, when the tadpole can't feed itself and can't reproduce? Now, the tadpole didn't begin life looking like that. You can go back even earlier into the development of that sea squirt. Now here, we're way, way back, right after the fertilization of the egg. This is the 16-cell stage. Somewhere back here, there was a single cell that was fertilized, and it began to divide. And we're picking up the story here at the 16-cell stage, 32, 64, 110, and so forth. Notice that even at this very, very early stage, as these cells are dividing, they know where they're going. These cells here are going to turn into skin, those dark ones. It's hard to see in the slide, but there are cells here that will become the brain and so forth. Now, if you have these embryos growing in a test tube and you put in a chemical that stops the cells from dividing, they will die. And they will die because they are not viable endpoints. You can think of these as halfway stations heading towards that red, little red potato. Again, ask yourself the question, if natural selection can only work by making copies, in other words, you've got to be able to make copies of yourself for natural selection to operate, how was all this complexity constructed when if this process were to stop, these organisms would all die? This is one more way of looking at the process I'm describing, and I'm only showing you half of it here because 
Notice that this, these embryos are bilaterally symmetrical around their midline, so you've got the same process going on on either side of that midline. We're only going to look at half of it. This is like a kind of a wiring diagram, and what this shows is here you start with one cell, the fertilized egg. It divides, and, and then there's another daughter cell that comes down here that's not shown in the figure, but these cells head off, they divide, they divide, they divide, and so forth. And you can see from the names here that these cells are heading towards functional tissues in that tadpole. Some will be skin, some will be, uh, excuse me, endoderm, and so forth. Now, I picked just one of those cell lines to illustrate. And I only picked one because this is unbelievably tedious to do in PowerPoint. But here's our starting point. There's our fertilized egg, and the first thing that happens is that cell divides. Now, the dotted line is to indicate that, that there's another daughter cell coming off here that I haven't put in. And that one divides, and that one divides. You can think of this like complex maneuvers heading towards, if all goes well, for this particular lineage, the nerve cord, an essential tissue in that tadpole. Now, how was all that put into place, all of those instructions? By natural selection, when the functional organism is way downstream, way downstream, and the organism that will actually be able to make sperm and eggs to reproduce itself is way off in the distance, tens of thousands of cells off in the distance. You can think of these like giving somebody instructions to get to your house here in Albuquerque, let's say from you know, Coos Bay, Oregon, or Seattle. You've got to leave your driveway, go down to the interstate, you know, and eventually, if you follow my directions, you'll come to my house in Albuquerque. There's a lot of necessary stuff that has to be put into place with those detailed instructions for them to actually reach the end point of reaching your front door here in Albuquerque. If we interrupt development at any of these stages, the embryo will die. And you can test this by putting in chemicals that stop the cell from dividing. How were all these instructions put in place by natural selection when the point that natural selection can actually see as a process lies way downstream? How was that built? Here's a little cartoon that shows you the problem in a single image. Let's suppose, now this is a very, very simple kind of animal, that reproductive capability only arises here when these five cells are aligned in this form. That's the point at which this cell, or excuse me, this organism can make more copies of itself. Its reproductive capability commences there. But to get to that point, you've got to have all this put in place first. So natural selection only begins here. What provided all those instructions? It couldn't have been selection, because selection, by the very logic of the theory itself, requires something that doesn't yet exist for that particular organism. Natural selection only sees function, if I can personify it that way. And the function that it sees is reproductive capability. If you can't leave offspring, you're invisible to evolution by natural selection. So how was that built? This was a problem for Darwin 150 years ago, and it's a problem for evolutionary theory today, but it's much, much harder to solve. And the reason it's much harder to solve is all of these cell divisions that we now know have a necessary genetic component that Darwin had no concept of. He couldn't even have imagined it. 
So you can think of the, for the, that the problem that Darwin faced when he wrote The Origin of Species 150 years ago has been magnified immeasurably by what biology has learned since then. But the problem itself has not changed. Excuse me. So how do organisms solve this problem? They have parents. They have parents. Here's Drosophila, little fruit fly, that if you ever have overripe bananas on your counter, you may see beautiful little tiny flies with brilliant red eyes buzzing around. What they're doing is they're eating the alcohol uh, caused by the fermentation of overripe fruit. So here's Drosophila, Melanogaster, little insect about which biology knows a great deal indeed. And at a point in the life history of this species, in mom's egg chamber, she is going to be providing instructions to this cell right here. This is the cell that will become the larval form, that will turn into the fly. And at this point, mom is pouring instructions into that cell. For instance, these cells here are injecting messenger RNA that are telling that cell, this is your head, this is your tail, this is your back, this is your front. So mom is setting up the conditions under which, if all goes well, that single cell will turn into a larvae that will eventually turn into an adult fly, namely junior. <laughs> so if you develop successfully today, and, you, and I, if I had to pick one line of evidence that to me indicated the reality of intelligence design, it's that, that anyone is born successfully ever. <laughs> When you think about how complicated it is to go from a single fertilized egg in Homo sapiens to an eight-pound baby, and that anyone ever is born and can, you know, grow up, to me, each child that's born successfully is, in a sense, a miracle when you consider how complicated this process is. Even with little Drosophila, even with little Drosophila, it's a, it's a process of unbelievable complexity. But you know what? This won't work for evolution. Because after all, evolution has to build mom where mom did not exist before. Intelligent design, by contrast, can begin with whole organisms. It's not magic. Because after all, designers can visualize endpoints and bring together what's necessary to achieve them. Evolution has a very much harder job, and that is to build complex organisms where they didn't exist before. So this won't work to explain the problem of the origin of animal form, because after all, it's mom that we wish to explain if we're thinking as evolutionists. And this problem is well known. I read this book a long time ago as an undergraduate. Rupert Riedel was a distinguished evolutionary biologist in Vienna, raised a whole generation of students who are now at universities around the world. And in this book, he points out that there is a paradox. He calls it the paradox of teleological evolution. That's a big adjective. But what it means is that the process of the origin of animal form appears to have been directed in some sense, not only in evolutionary history, but in fact with each organism that's, that develops. And he says, these diagrams of organisms, by that he means embryos, can't be functional ancestors because they would prove this paradox. Their parts strive towards functions without being able to possess them during their formation. Let's go back to the, to the sea squirt embryo. As these cells are dividing along this way, increasing their number, they're heading towards a tadpole way down here, hundreds and hundreds of cell divisions later, which is itself going to turn into a sea squirt. But these are only halfway stations. They're necessary conditions for that tadpole to exist, but they couldn't be ancestral because they're not viable. 
he uses an architectural metaphor. He says, think about building a structure like this. While it's being constructed, you can't have church services in it. You can't have lectures. You're building it. So while the organism is being constructed, it is, in a sense, not a functional organism that natural selection can see. Just the way that the buildings that we construct, while we're building them, cannot be inhabited because they're in the process of being constructed. So why is it a paradox? Well, it's only a paradox if you reject the possibility of intelligent design. Now, if you take home nothing else tonight, what I want you to realize is that everything I've said has nothing to do, or everything that I've said about evolution and its shortcomings is something that one could discuss. And in fact, I've given this talk. I gave this talk in China, or a much earlier version of it. I've given this talk to evolutionary biology audiences. I haven't yet mentioned a word about religion or God or anything that would be sort of bothersome that way. This is something that deals with the evidence. So if what I've shown you suggests to you the possibility of intelligent design, as I think it should, realize that it's not a question really of the evidence. I think the evidence is crystal clear. The question is, what are we going to let that evidence tell us? Is it possible that life was intelligently designed? Well, of course it is. And that's the view that I would have even if I were an agnostic or atheist. Of course it's possible. The problem is, in the 19th century with the Darwinian revolution, a possible cause disappeared from the toolkit of science. It was taken out. You can think about this very much like you have a toolkit in your garage with a hammer and a saw and a screwdriver and so forth. And there were more tools in that toolbox for Isaac Newton and for Kepler and for Galileo because they allowed for the possibility of intelligent design than now exist after the Darwinian revolution. It's strange, but with Darwin, the toolkit of science got smaller because Darwin not only wanted to introduce a theory about the origin of species, he wanted to change the way that science itself was done. In other words, change the ground rules of science. This is a good toolkit to have for any curious human being. There are natural causes, like gravity. If I let this laser pointer go, we know what's going to happen with a probability approaching one. It's an object with mass. It's in a gravitational field. If it's free to move, it will move towards the center of that field. And I'm not going to let it go <laughs> because I did that once and I didn't catch it in time. But we all know what's going to happen. So natural causes are real. But the laser pointer itself could never be explained by gravity or by any combination of natural causes. To explain the laser pointer, to explain this laptop, to explain pretty much everything that we see that's not an organism. We need to invoke intelligence. That should be part of your toolkit when you try to explain the world. But this is what happened with the Darwinian revolution. Except for homo sapiens and smart animals like beavers or bumblebees that make, uh, you know, that construct hives, intelligent causes were eliminated from science and that's all that was left, natural causes. Bigger, smaller. And I would like to believe that even if I were an agnostic or an atheist, that I would want a better and more adequate toolkit to explain the phenomena of nature if the evidence calls for it. But making this kind of shift is not something you do in science. It's a philosophical decision. 
And it, what it has to do with is what are you going to let the evidence tell you? And there's a name for this rule. It's another long term methodological naturalism, but in a simple formulation from the National Academy of Sciences, it says the statements of science must invoke only natural things and processes, where this means non intelligent. And that's an imperative that verb. That's what I say to my daughters when they want to play video games and their rooms are untidy. They must clean them up and they don't have a choice. And that's what the scientific establishment says to you when you come to a puzzle in nature and you want to explain it by reference to non-human intelligence. They say, I'm sorry, but back to the bench. Shoulder to the wheel. If you want to explain as a scientist, that's what's in your toolkit. This has nothing to do with the evidence. It has everything to do with a philosophy that we are free to adopt or to reject in the face of the evidence. So if someone tells you that it's not scientific to infer intelligent design, ask them how they know that. Do they know that as a matter of evidence or do they know that as a matter of a philosophical decision that they made? You could not get through your day without saying that pattern had a natural cause, that pattern had an intelligent cause. All human beings do this. It's part of our basic rationality. Why can't we do it in biology? If it's the case that natural selection could not put that in place, we need to consider the possibility of intelligent design. Not because we're stubborn or perverse or religiously motivated. No, that's what the evidence appears to indicate. Is that a good picture of reality? Natural selection does not explain the origin of a golden retriever. It doesn't explain the origin of his distant ancestor, the chordate in the Cambrian explosion. Right now, September 2006, if you go to the biological literature and try to find the explanation in terms of natural selection for the origin of the chordate body plan, you will not find it because it does not exist. In fact, it does not exist for any of the major animal body plans. The problem that Darwin faced in 1859 is unsolved today, but it's much, much harder to solve now. So I suggest we do that and say, why can't we entertain that possibility? Is it a question of evidence or what we're going to let the evidence tell us? The very last thing you want as a curious human being is a bad philosophy of science standing between you and the evidence itself. Let your curiosity lead you not a philosophy of science that we inherited from the 19th century and that is better off in the rubbish bin. And I more or less finished on time. So we have some time for questions. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.